0: Al Jazeera podcast. This is the sound of a protest calling for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. Not in Washington, Istanbul, or London, where similar rallies have been organized. Instead, it's in Dubai a city that rarely sees such protests. A hundred people made a stand on Sunday at the UN climate summit, COP 28, in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates.
1: Israel says its forces are operating in every part of Gaza as it launched a new ground offensive into the south of the Strip. Displaced Palestinian families, many who came south in search of safety, now fleeing once again.
0: They gathered there to put Israel's war in Gaza on the agenda. Already on the list of things to be discussed is transitioning to renewable energy, climate resilience, and economic justice for climate-vulnerable countries. The protest and the negotiations are all happening in a country that's one of the world's leading fossil fuel producers and a leader in the region's efforts to normalize relations with Israel. But the war isn't just on the minds of attendees. It's also on the lips of world leaders. We just had the news that the bombs are sounding again in Gaza. And climate chaos is fanning the flames of injustice. So what does the war mean for COP28? And what does COP28 mean for Gaza? I'm Bilal, and this is The Take.
1: My name is Karim El I'm an urban sustainability and climate specialist based in London, um, and also an associate fellow with Chatham House and the Middle East Institute in Washington.
0: And right now, you are in Dubai at the United Nations Climate Summit, also known as COP28.
1: Is this your first COP? This is actually my fifth COP. Mm -hmm. Started going in 2016.
0: So this year, as opposed to the previous years, what's different?
1: This is a bit of a milestone COP. There's a number of things that were aligned to make this a more significant COP than previous ones, uh, especially the... um, a review of the Paris Agreement known as the global stock take. This is a moment for us to take stock of where we are. Is the Paris Agreement working? And as it turns out, to no one's surprise, we are not on track and their efforts need to be uh, doubled and doubled again for us to avoid the worst impacts of climate change.
0: Do you go into these things hopeful that something groundbreaking is going to come out of it, or do you go in a little bit pessimistic?
1: I go in a little bit realistic, and I know this sounds a little bit cliche, but the number of moving parts in these meetings are uh, perhaps too many for us to hope that the stars will somehow magically align. (laughs) This is not an environmental meeting. This is by and large a negotiation over the future of the global economy and there will be winners and losers in this and every nation wants to maintain its interest in this new world economy that is currently being forged as we speak. And these conversations that we're party to or uh, witnessing are incredibly important for the coming decades.
0: This year is unique for several reasons and one of those is that for obvious reasons, even something as pressing as climate change takes a backseat when it comes to war. Now, Gaza is on the minds and the lips of people around the world and of officials at COP28. Colombian President Gustavo Petro. The genocide and barbarism unleashed on the Palestinian people is what awaits the exodus of the peoples of the
1: South, unleashed by the climate crisis.
0: Jordan's King Abdullah.
1: We cannot talk about climate change in isolation from the humanitarian tragedies unfolding around us. As we speak, the Palestinian people are facing an immediate threat to their lives and well-being.
0: And U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris.
1: Israel must do more to protect innocent life in Gaza, and innocent civilians in Gaza.
0: On the first day of COP28, Egypt's foreign minister, the chair of last year's conference, Please stand for a moment of silence in memory of— me. took a moment of silence to remember those killed in Gaza. As well as all civilians who have perished during the current conflict in Gaza. So I asked Karim if the background of war is something he noticed at the conference. Is it palpable?
1: In terms of the, what we are seeing on the ground, there's been a number of incidents, if you like, uh, that suggest that the war has cast a shadow over the COP. But that has multiple layers to it. So if I may go into the, the things that we saw it physically on the ground, there has been a number of protests that were very hard to miss near the entrance of the COP. There's been a number of calls for justice, which in the, in the normal COP context would mean climate justice. But it would, in this particular context, it was very clear what it meant. A number of civil society organizations, especially the Climate Action Network International, have posted their daily briefings that had the banner ceasefire now as large as they could get it on. And additionally, we would seen also a withdrawal of a presidential speech by President Herzog the Israeli president was canceled. And one more thing, uh, which might seem a little bit anecdotal, but on the first day, the Israeli pavilion had an equal number of security personnel as visitors, Mm. which I thought was rather amusing.
0: Well, describe for me, what does that even mean, the Israeli pavilion? How is this laid out?
1: So many countries choose to have pavilions in which they showcase the greatest things that they're doing about climate So for the first year, last year at COP27, Israel had its first pavilion. And this year, it was meant to have one of the largest delegations in the world. It was meant to be a thousand person strong. That clearly didn't quite materialize, but the extent to which it shrunk was rather impressive. Because from a thousand strong delegation, it looks incredibly small. Um, The president was supposed to be here, Prime Minister Netanyahu was supposed to be here. Most government officials were interested in showing up during this particular COP, but it looks like that didn't quite materialize. And for obvious reasons, many are, in fact, reservists. So they're being called to war uh, duties, and many were just uncomfortable coming to such an event being hosted uh, here in the UAE. The fact that this summit is
0: being held in the United Arab Emirates, so... Is there any significance to that? Because we know that this is a country that had led the region's normalization efforts with Israel. And of course, all of that is before the events of October 7th. So how are those things being felt at the conference? Do you feel them or does it feel like business as usual for the most part?
1: I couldn't detect any of that, I'm afraid. Having said that, that shadow has actually been cast and, it, and you can see it in the drive for collaboration, climate collaboration in the region, which started after the Abraham Accords have, uh, had been signed, had been quite obvious. Israel has been reaching out to so countries from Morocco to the UAE, trying to have MOUs and deals on how they are primarily climate-related. So climate mitigation, climate adaptation of this technology exchange with the region. And it looks like that had slowed down after the war broke out. Something else that was highlighted, that was also perhaps regional, is how the war has exposed some level of policy incoherence between what perhaps the EU does when it comes to its climate policy, its aid policy, its development policy, and what it does in terms of the foreign policy. So one example is Germany finds it easier to provide money for waste treatment plants, for solar plants, even when Israel destroys them. And it has it has done this year uh, when it destroyed the recently opened um, water treatment plant and has destroyed solar panels, many, many solar panels. And those very facilities were financed by Germany with 90 million um, uh, euros was was contributed by Germany. Yet Germany finds it difficult to call for a ceasefire. And uh, perhaps it finds it easier to rebuild that at a later date than to actually call for a ceasefire due to its own calculations.
0: Wow. Climate policy incoherence. I haven't heard that before, but it seems to really sum up what we're seeing so well. So the things you mentioned, do you hear people talking about this or do you think that this is not on the top of minds?
1: It's on the top of minds of many, actually. The uh, in the climate world, there's this grand bargain between the developing nations and the developed nations. So the developing nations keep saying, well, we need to, we need to develop. We can't phase out fossil fuels. We can't move away from this. We don't have alternative technologies. We, we, we need support. So if you want us to reduce our emissions, please help us technically, financially, and help us to adapt to climate change, which we had not caused. So this grand bargain, the West will do one thing and the rest of the developing countries will do another and at every point, this is subject to review, who is not providing what they said they will provide. And the same thing happened in Gaza. And these fault lines accentuate these other. and make it very difficult for the negotiators at those events, as I say, diplomats find themselves on different sides. And, and as those fault lines deepen, it becomes harder for calls for climate justice to make sense, right? Because then you don't actually have real justice.
0: After the break, what real climate justice would look like for Gaza and for the rest of the world? Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI, and I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Your class starts January 8th. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and
1: Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts.
0: So, Karim, in the last 60 days, many more people have been thinking about Gaza's water, energy, food systems. But it's something that you have been thinking about for a while now. And we hear a lot about the resilience of the people of Gaza. What can you tell us about what Gaza had in terms of its climate resiliency?
1: Gaza had a very fragile environment that was unfortunately decimated by a number of factors. It had very little water to start with, and that water, due to reasons to do with abstraction, wastewater treatment, became both contaminated by wastewater, but also contaminated with uh, seawater. And as a result, Gaza, before the war, had 97% of its water contaminated one way or another and unsuitable for human use. Gaza had very limited energy supply, they had the cable that was connecting them from Israel, which Israel obviously disconnected as soon as the hostilities began. It wasn't providing enough, but there was a lot of effort to create some energy security via solar panels. And Gaza had an explosion, if you like, of rooftop solar panels. Unfortunately, many of those ended up being destroyed during the wars for one reason or another. And Gaza has always struggled with wastewater, and in many cases that waste was discharged to sea that has caused an environmental crisis which has not been limited to Gaza so it had, in many cases it had flown all the way to Israel and as a result some of the desalination plants in Israel had to be turned off i appreciate that the gazans have had to suffer a lot and that they as a result they have become a resilient people but i don't think we i don't think it's okay to say You've lived through a lot because you're resilient. I think people deserve to live better. We can't use their resiliency against them, right? So we can't say, well, you're a resilient nation. Um, Therefore, you're more willing to tolerate more than we are. So from that perspective, I think Gaza looked already unlivable. There was several UN reports saying, well, Gaza is going to become uninhabitable within the coming decade. And what we're seeing now, half of North Gaza destroyed, That is an environment that is not suitable for human habitation. Not only are, where are these people going to go back to, but where, when, if they go back to it, where are they going to live and how is that going to be rebuilt and where are you going to get the right materials? And in a way, it looks like hope is hanging by a fingernail. So the
0: loss and damage fund that is international funding that will be distributed to climate-vulnerable countries. And COP defines vulnerable as a place where the conditions can't be changed. As you've said, Gaza's infrastructure has been destroyed in this latest war. Is this the kind of loss and damage that would or would not be counted?
1: So, loss and damage applies to climate impacts that cannot be adapted to and cannot be mitigated. So. A sea level rise, for example, in a, in a Pacific island nation where there is no way to deal with this, to adapt to this. and This is where loss and damage finance is being provided. In a way, it's some form of reparations, but that language is no longer there and we're not allowed to use reparations or to describe it in those terms just because it creates future basis for legal liability on nations that have contributed to the climate change in the first place. So where we are is creating a fund with hundreds of millions of dollars, it's not in the billions it's just in the millions uh, to provide for the most fragile and the most vulnerable nations to deal with climate change impacts that cannot be adapted to. In the case of Gaza yes there's a climate component but there's also a man-made component so perhaps the climate component would be uh, eligible for getting such funding.
0: When you leave, COP, what for you will feel like success? Especially after having been to so many, and at least in the public's view, not much changes.
1: So the loss and damage fund was one success. There has been calls for it for 30 years. Yes, the money is not enough, but we can still add money to it. There's a lot of uh, convincing to be done to get contributors to put money into that fund. And the second thing was this agreement by developing and developed nations on ramping up renewable energy capacity three times by 2030, which is a big ask really. And also improving energy efficiency, the rate at which energy efficiency improves from 2% to 4% every year. If we see a deal on phasing down fossil fuels, if we see a a commitment enough on renewables, if we see an agreement on how to adapt, how can vulnerable nations and developing nations adapt to climate change? And if there is more development on that front, if we see an increase in ambition for finance, at the moment, the amounts of finance that developing nations are demanding are four or five times what is currently being provided. There's a number of things that have happened that were successful and, and that can be credited to the Emirati hosts. But those are the big files that, in my opinion, would need to be hashed out during the coming days.
0: And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Chloe Kay. Lee, Campana, and Sireel Khalili. With Zainab Bezer, Sonia Bagat, David Enders, Miranda Lynn, Ashish Mathotra, Negin Oliai, Khalid Sultan, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. The Take's executive producer is Alexandra Locke. And Nay Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.